Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. So I remember when I was in college, my roommate and I went out to get some supplies for our dorm room. And while we were there, he got a uh, CD rack. So for the sake of our students and those who grew up in the generation of the smartphone, a CD is like a little plastic anorexic pancake that holds music. Okay? Unlike a smartphone, you can't put all the songs that you want in one spot. You've got to have different CDs that have all the different albums and artists that you like. And so if you like a lot of music, you end up with a whole bunch of CDs. And so the way to organize the chaos of all those different crystal cases and CDs was with a CD rack. So he gets this. It's the most basic thing you could ever find, 25-case wireframe CD rack. And I remember looking at this thing, and on the packaging... At the top little corner, you've got the brand of the company that made it, then you've got a little description at the top of what it is, and right in the middle, in a big bright circle with the largest font on the entire packaging, is a note that says, not to be used as a ladder. <laughs> it's a 25K CD rack. It's this tall. This is a functional ladder, maybe if you are a Lego person. Like, at what point... He said, like, I need to reach something that is this far ahead of my tippy toes so I know I'll stand on the glorified string of pipe cleaners because that looks like it's built to hold a human body. And that's the most prominent thing on the package, more important to the creators of this than you know what it actually is. It's not a ladder, guys. Don't use it for that. Because when you try to use something in a manner other than intended, it can cause serious problems. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1 this morning. Uh, all throughout the Old Testament, what we're going to see a little bit of today is there are these things called types of Christ or shadows of Jesus. These are pictures, illustrations, people that God littered throughout human history to serve as examples of Jesus or illustrations of Jesus so that when Jesus came, we could identify and recognize him because we'd have seen his various characteristics all throughout history. See, everything in Scripture is about Jesus. If you can read the story of Moses and you think it's about Moses, you've missed the point of Moses. If you read the story of David, you go, oh, that's about David. You've missed the point of David. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. And so in the spirit of that, our author paints a little word picture for us, connecting Jesus to this intriguing encounter in the Old Testament. So we get to look at this really weird event, and we get to talk about everybody's favorite biblical man of mystery. And it's not even Christmas. Chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. So... Firstly, the slaughter of kings sounds like a really awesome movie. Like, I would, like if they made that, like all these Christian movies that are coming out, like all that stuff is great, but like if Abraham's slaughter of kings, I would watch that. Just so you know, that's not really relevant to anything. 
So to set the background for you, Genesis 14, it's 2000 BC. And there's a coalition of Canaanite kings led by a guy named King Chedorlaomer. So we know that he got made fun of in high school and then went on to invent cheese. Cheddar, it's, it's in the, okay. So this coalition, they start attacking the Transjordan area. They defeat the Amorites and the Amalekites. And then the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, and several other local city-states rise up, and they go out to face them in a great battle of kings. And the king of Sodom and his crew lose badly. And so Chedorlaomer and all of his group come in, and they just start plundering the land. They take all the treasures and a whole bunch of hostages with them, including Abraham's nephew, Lot. So Abraham finds out about that. <laughs> uh-uh, not today. So he goes and he gets 318 trained guys that he has with him. Right? This army that is attacking them just defeated all of the armies in the area. He goes and gets a couple of his buddies, and they say, let's go fight these guys. And so they chase down the kings that just beat everybody. They launch a surprise attack, and Abraham slaughters the kings and scatters the armies. So you have Abraham. Right? This Conan, the geriatric barbarian, who just defeated these kings, took all their treasure, brought it back to the people, and rescued all the hostages at the same time. Keep in mind, the dude's like a hundred. Okay? So the people are going nuts for this guy. YouTube and Twitter or TikTok are all blowing up about Grandpa Rambo and how he did this incredible thing. And so Abraham comes back Having slaughtered kings covered in blood and the mud and the people are celebrating him as this conquering hero. And that's when he has this strange, mysterious encounter with this intriguing, shadowy figure, the priest king of Salem, Melchizedek. <coughs> Bless you. You ready for it to get weird? Yes. One person thinks like me. I'm so sorry for you. Your life is not going to be good. <laughs> when the Old Testament introduces a character, it will always give us a little bit of a historical snapshot. Here's where they came from. Here's when they lived. Here's when they died. With Melchizedek, we get nothing. Dude just shows up out of nowhere, sticks around for like three verses, and then disappears into the ether from whence he came. Melchizedek is the only Old Testament worshiper of God of whom we know nothing about his ancestry or descendants. And so this random guy that just appears after a great big battle shows up and blesses Abraham. The blessing is an offering of bread and wine. Bread was a symbol of strength. Wine was a symbol of life and joy. So dude just comes out of nowhere and offers Abraham strength and life. Verse 2. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. So it gets weirder. Abraham meets this random guy who gives him some bread and juice and then Abraham gives him a tithe, 10% of all the spoils of war. Now, to the Hebrew, 
That's a big deal because to the Hebrew person, a tithe is not just about a giving of 10%. A tithe is a symbolic gesture that declares that everything that I have belongs to you. So the purpose of the tithe was to make a declaration, but also to serve as a reminder to the one giving it that what you have isn't yours. It belongs to someone that is greater. So Abraham met this guy, okay? He just slaughtered kings, so it's not like a title's impressing him. He just killed a bunch of kings. He meets this dude. The guy gives him a little brunch, and then he says, everything I have belongs to you. As Rowan says, Daddy, that's weird. Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness and his title king of Salem means king of peace. Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. At first glance, it kind of sounds like the author is saying, this guy is immortal, that he's this random eternal being that's been wandering around, playing hide and seek for centuries, but forgot to tell anybody that he was hiding, so we didn't know to look for him. What he's actually saying is there's something really strange that we're not given any information about this guy. He's pointing out how odd it is for a character in the Old Testament to have no other information about them. And what he's suggesting is that that is not an accident, but rather was done by the intention of God to paint for us an Old Testament picture of an eternal king of peace and righteousness who gives strength and life to those whose hearts are truly his. That sound familiar? This is the only historical record in the Old Testament of Melchizedek. He's mentioned again in the 10th century BC when David writes Psalm 110, talking about the Messiah being a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this guy shows up out of nowhere, gives Abraham a meal, collects from him a tithe, and then isn't mentioned again for a thousand years. Verse 4, see how great this man was, whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. All right, so here's where it gets weirder. Abraham gives this guy a tithe. You already said that. Why are you telling us that again? Because the author tells us that again, and it's weird in more than one way. In Jewish culture, patriarchs don't tithe. The patriarch is the head. They are the authority. They are the one that everybody else looks up to. They sit in the big seat of power and are honored in their culture because Hebrew culture honors heritage. In Hebrew culture, it does not matter how great you are. Right? If you become the leader of the free world and call, create world peace, if you put an end to every disease, if you solve world hunger single-handedly, when you go home, dad's still the boss. Because in Hebrew culture, you are lesser than your father because you wouldn't exist without your father. I don't know where the moms factored into this. They kind of play an important role, but here we are. It's a patriarchal culture. Dad is always greater because you wouldn't exist without him. And therefore, all that you accomplish and achieve is accredited to him. So in Hebrew culture, patriarchs don't bend the knee. They don't bow, not to their family, not to those who are under them. They stand proud and everyone else bows to them. And yet, 
with Abraham, the patriarch of the entire nation of Israel, one of the greatest men in Jewish history, bending the knee to Melchizedek and offering him a tithe. To the Jewish person, this makes absolutely no sense. Verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are descendants of Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendants from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. One of the fun things about being a communicator is you start to learn where there are going to be natural objections to points that you're going to make. You realize, okay, people are not ready to hear this yet, or they, this goes against some preconceived idea that they have, or it's just too far out of their comfort zone, and so they're not going to receive it well right away. So when you make a certain point, you just know people, rather than hear, are going to argue. And so he knows the point that he's making, the Levitical priesthood is inferior is going to be met with pushback. And as the people that he's writing to are going to try to dismiss his point by citing the Levitical priest taking up a tithe. See, it's not that big a deal that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. The Levitical priests take that up all the time. And his point is this. Those two things are different. The Levitical priests are not taking up a tithe as a position of their own superiority but as an allotment from the law to serve as a provision for their service. The Levitical priest is taking up 10% from their brothers, but it functions more as a tax than a tithe. It is not them declaring to the Levites, everything I have belongs to you. His point is that the Levitical priesthood is by nature inferior, and everything about Jewish culture supports it. Because Abraham is the patriarch. The Levites come from Abraham, which means the Levites, as much as they were honored in their society, were lesser than Abraham. So if Abraham acknowledges that he is lesser than Melchizedek after meeting him for like 17 seconds, if Abraham lesser than Melchizedek and the Levites are lesser than Abraham, transitive property, Levites less than Melchizedek. Math in the morning is always fun. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. In the other case, it is by the one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Abraham the father and founder of the nation of Israel, the man of whom God called his friend, the man who received the promises of God that kings would come from him, that nations would be made of him, that the entire earth would be blessed because of him. Can you imagine knowing that every person that lives is blessed because you exist? Abraham stands as a towering figure 
in all of history. Yet for all of his honor and great worth, Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek. And biblical blessings are always the greater blessing, the lesser. The king blesses his subjects. The master blesses his servants. The father blesses his sons. And so the point that our author is trying to make is that the old system, he's addressing a group of people who are suffering and being persecuted, and they're considering going back to the old ways, going to do things back to the Jewish system of Levitical priests and the law. They're considering going back to avoid Roman persecution. And so the point that he makes is that the old way with the Levitical priests was never intended to be the answer. It is not God's ultimate purpose. See, so what the Levitical priests would do is they serve kind of like modern-day counselors or a life coach or even kind of in some ways like a Catholic priest. What you would do is when you were living, you were struggling in life, you were dealing with the guilt and shame that comes from sin, is you would go to a priest and you would tell them, here's what's going on in my life, here's what I'm dealing with, here's my struggles, here's my issues. The priest would listen to you and then they would show you the law. And they would point out where your lifestyle and choices were inconsistent with God's instructions. Here's what you need to start doing. Here's what you need to stop doing. Here's what you need to do differently. And then they would slaughter an animal to atone for your imperfection. Their job was to look at your life and tell you what you needed to change. It was a system of behavior modification. Do this, don't do that. How many of you guys grew up in church? Anybody like me just kind of born in this thing? Okay. There's this thing, right? As a church person, you kind of, you're probably familiar with this word, right? We call it Christianese. It's like a whole language that church people use and know that we rarely take the time to translate for anybody else. So we use certain words, we just expect them to figure out what it is. Like righteousness. You use it all the time. When was the last time somebody explained what it was? Righteousness literally means to be held in right standing with God. It's a legal term for being without fault. What righteousness means is that in the eyes of God, you're good, you're acceptable, you're pleasing. And so one of the most important questions that we ask in this life is, how do I become righteous? And our most natural instinct, our base response, our modus operandi is to try to be a good person. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to live a good life. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to avoid bad things. I'm going to follow this set of rules and this group of laws. And I'm going to do all this. I'm going to work really hard so that I can make myself good. Our default response to the question, how do we become righteous, is I do it. Through my work, my life, my effort, my performance. The biblical term for this is self-righteous. Self-righteousness is not about having an attitude of superiority and looking down at everybody else. Self-righteousness is believing that you became good in the eyes of God based on your work or effort. And then religion comes along and it feeds into that idea. It says, God is good, you are bad, try harder. Go, oh, okay, cool, I'll just follow more rules. I'll just, 
buckle down and I'll learn this law and I'm going to follow all this stuff and I'm going to go through these customs and I'm going to get it all sorted out because we all know the creed, right? Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. <laughs> Just do that and you'll be righteous. And it doesn't work. It's never worked. See, the law can teach you how to live. The law can make you look right. But it has no power to affect anything below the surface. Some of us, especially those of us who grew up in this church thing, with that religious mentality of here's what it means to be a good Christian, like that's an actual thing. You got to do these things and don't do those things. And we struggle our whole lives, battling against our own nature trying to clean up our act, trying to get it together. Why do I keep doing these things? We try to be perfect, right? We try to say the right thing and do the right thing and think the right thing and feel the right thing so that we can always be as right as we can possibly be because that's what salvation is all about, getting the most answers right on the test. Or we just think, if I can be right enough, if I can get enough of this right, if I can tip the scales in my favor enough, then I can be righteous and I get to go to heaven. Yay! But underneath it, we know the condition of our heart. When we get past all the actions and the behaviors and the things that we do to try to make ourselves look right, we know that there is still something incredibly dark and broken and painful within us. Because the law can change how you live but it cannot change who you are. The law can give your life a cleaning, but it will never bring healing. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how well you follow the rules. It doesn't matter how great or impressive your performance is. It doesn't matter how meticulously you follow the law. It will never produce life. Because church, it was never meant to. And when you use something in a manner other than intended, it can cause serious problems. So when we trust in rules and laws, when we trust in our behavior and tinkering with our own moral, moral ethical choices by trying to be a good person and to live a good life, when we put our trust in these things, we've set ourselves up to fail because we're trying to get them to do something they were never intended to do. We say, well, they're, they're a good person. I'm a good person. I deserve because I follow these rules. The point that the author's making is that rule following, law keeping, behavior modification, it's, it's an Abrahamic system. And there's something greater than Abraham. Law cannot do what the law was never made to do. See, the work of counselors, of life coaches and priests, while of a great value, 
There's something greater that Jesus desires to do in the hearts of those who love him. Are you diminishing the work of counselors and the importance of people helping guide and mentor those to live and honor Jesus in their lives? No. What I'm saying is they're not the goal. They're the vehicle. Their purpose is to guide us. It's to reveal and expose the darkness that is within us. Because in that darkness, when the mask comes off and the facade of who we want to convince ourselves that we are comes crumbling down around us and we are left sitting in the harsh, ugly reality of our brokenness and sin, it is there that grace and transformation begin. Because you know why some people encounter Jesus and walk away acting different and other people encounter Jesus and they are radically transformed by him? The difference between them is not Jesus. It's one of them allowed him to come into that deep pit of despair in their hearts. They allowed themselves to look at their own brokenness and sin. They allowed themselves to see with genuine honesty what was wrong in them so that Jesus could heal it. You keep Jesus on the surface, it becomes behavior modification. You will look good, but your heart will be a mess. But when you surrender all that you have and all that you are to him, when you let him in to the depths and darkness that is our own imperfection, he can do what rules never would. He can heal that which is broken in us. The law cannot bring salvation because it was never meant to. The purpose of the law was to make us aware of our need for a savior. Our savior, our great high priest, the king of righteousness and peace. For just as Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, so Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. See, Melchizedek may have been the king of righteousness and peace, but he had no ability to make you righteous or to give you peace. But Jesus does. Jesus puts an end to our conflict with God. Jesus puts fear to death. Jesus destroys the power that worry has in your life because Jesus, the king of peace, gives peace to those who belong to him. And church, the question that we ought to ask ourselves is if Jesus is my king, do I have that peace? Because a lot of times we call ourselves Jesus' followers, we call ourselves by his name, but we still worry and are anxious and are stressed about all the same things that the world is stressed by. If Jesus is your king, why don't you have his peace? what this mysterious encounter shows us. Hundreds of years before the giving of the law, there was something greater than the law. What is that greater thing? Not a system of behavior modification, but genuine heart transformation. God's greater desire has not been laws and rules. His greater desire has always been 
to give strength and life to those who love him. And Jesus, our high priest forever, gives us righteousness and peace. See, church, we were not good, so Jesus was good for us. We were not perfect, so Jesus was perfect for us. We were not righteous, so Jesus gave us his righteousness. We could not hold on to him, so he held on to us. We were weak, he was strong. We were broken, and so he healed us. We were dead in our sin, and so Jesus made us alive in him. He holds us in his hand. He strengthens us with his spirit. In him we have life. In him we have hope. In him we have joy, because in him we can stand in the presence of our creator with confidence, knowing that he has made us righteous, so we get to enter into eternal life. Confidence comes from putting your trust in the right thing. If you put it in your work, if you put it in your performance, if you put it in how well you live and what a good person you are, you will never have a good night's sleep in your life except for the times which you are capable of fully deluding yourself. But when you place your trust in the eternal priest king that is Jesus, who God has been working from the beginning of the world, from creation itself, before you existed, God had laid out a way to bring you to him, to make you his. He was thinking about you before you drew your first breath knowing your sin, knowing your imperfection, knowing your failures. He was making a way to make you righteous. And the God who is so detail-oriented, so perfect in his design that he would lay out thousands of images to point us to Jesus before Jesus ever came, he's not going to miss you. You're not going to get lost in some ledger, missed in some book, overlooked in a big crowd. He has worked for longer than you have existed to make you his. As a church, in him we celebrate because in him and him alone do we become righteous and find peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all come in with baggage. We come to you with hurts and wounds in our lives, scars from living in a broken world. God, I pray that you would invade our hearts, that we would see, that we would recognize how great you are and that we would surrender all the baggage and the garbage that we've carried to you, that we would entrust ourselves fully and completely to you and that we would devote ourselves that we would devote ourselves to you, the one who gives us strength and life. God, I pray for every person in their struggle, every person's worried and concerned that they don't know how to get through whatever it is they're going with, that they would turn to you 
and that in you they would find their peace. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.